This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Parker. The title of the book is I'll Still Be Me, and we're hearing in the background the musical talents of our author, Ruth Allen. Ruth, originally from Great Britain, now residing in California, welcome. Share with my listeners a little of the background of your life and why you chose to write your biography, I'll Still Be Me. Well, to tell you the truth, Jay, I, I didn't intend for it to be published. I had no idea it would be published. I wrote it at a very bad time. Um, I was very down, and I was in England and living in a cottage by myself, and I had to... It was cathartic, literally. Mm. And I started writing. I thought, well, I'll start at the beginning when I was born and, and, and just get it all out of my system. Let me mention and this. That's... Let me also mention this to my listeners because you, you are a youthful-sounding lady, and I don't mean to uh, say you're not a youthful lady, but you do, <laughs> you do disclose in your book that you were born in 1929. That's, that's uh, right, a sweetheart. wonderful And history. I had a birthday just last week. Ah, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> no, I certainly don't feel anywhere near my age. I just, I just don't. In fact, my doctor told me when I was 84, she, I said, my, well, well, doctor, I'm 84. She said, Ruth, you are not 84. <laughs> no, that's so, true. So, um, no, I, I don't even think about age anymore. It's just, I'm just enjoying what I'm doing. And how much time did you, or when did you begin your music career? Because your musical career spanned, uh, of course, many decades, and you're still active. You're still very vibrant as a musician and singer. Yes, absolutely. Thank God. And I do thank God every day, because I'm a very, very lucky woman. Um, no, If I tell people my age, and I've never lied about it, hmm. um, they just are so incredible. You know, incredulous because I, I know I don't look my age, but that's that's in the genes. <laughs> but um, I started when I was fifteen. Actually, it was my first professional job, and that was during the war. And um, in a, my girlfriend and I went for an audition and won it. And so we were put in this show during the war. The big theaters, big cinemas. Some of them were three thousand seaters. It was wow. one of ours. The one that we did. And um, we were on the stage every night for two weeks, and we earned twelve pound a week, Incredible. which was a fortune. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and that started me off. I knew that's what I wanted to do forever, you know, if I could. And what did you do following that performance, that that booking? Well, we um, we were booked in another theatre. We did the Kilburn Empire, and um, with with. Um, a girl band, and I can't remember her name. It's one thing age shows is you, your memory gets, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, well, I didn't continue because our mums got so worried about us every night having to come home through the raids, mm -hmm. which were awful. I mean, it. we weren't scared, it, only to dodge the shrapnel that was coming down as we oh, were walking because they'd close the underground the minute the siren went off, and it did every night when we were on stage. And um, But the place, the theaters filled because people just wanted to forget, you know, for a little while. And so it was a great big stage show that went on for about an hour in between movies. So it was a great start. But then I, um, when I was 24, I auditioned. I was married very young, which was a mistake, but never mind. I married very young, so I had two children by the time I was 22 years old and divorced in tw at 23. And at mm. 24, I got a job at the Astor Club in London, which was very famous at that time. It was, yes. Um, for two weeks. And on the fourth night, I was such a hit <laughs> mm. that um, the boss got me in his office and gave me a year's contract. Ooh. In by the heart of London. So there I was, star of the Astro Club for a year. You've also performed at Carnegie Hall. Uh, you I have did that with Michael Feinstein. Soundtrack Fine. starring Kelsey Grammer. Amazing. Yeah. What movie uh, soundtrack was that? Well, that I didn't have. A set. Kelsey Grammer 
was in a movie that um, featured, didn't feature, but had two of my songs in it. Just snippets of them, really. Incredible. So that was that. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, and but, um, was was most of your music music theater, or did you uh, you mentioned that you also sang in supper clubs and so on? Oh, Which yeah. was your first love? Yeah, um, piano bars I like best. I was a piano bar artist for years and toured Sweden and Berlin and uh, oh, I, I'm a month in Paris and um, <clears throat> I loved Sweden. I love the Swedish people. They are beautiful, very musical people. And, of course, it was during the time I was in London. I got back to London, and um, it's, I, I'm jumping this, aren't I? No, I'm sorry, but no, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, it. so many things happen through my, my book. Is you, if you get the book, it is, uh, tells the whole story. And um, ended up back in uh, London, and I worked in a, in a hotel in Grosvenor Square, which is right opposite the uh, American Embassy, for 13 years, and mm. I, that is when I wrote my book. Um, really? Because uh, I wrote my, my musical, I should say. Musical, I correct. I wrote my musical called Ring Out the Bow Bells, and uh, as, as seemed to write a song every week, because every time I invented a character, I had to write them a song. <laughs> and then I'd try them out at the piano bar. And it, so it became a feature of the piano bar, that they'd all come in, stand uh, or sit around my piano bar, six deep sometimes and um, listen to my songs and I thought must be good because they all loved it and they'd learn it and sing it and uh, so um, gave me a lot of strength that did. Where was your music uh, talent to where did it come from what was the foundation did you did you study piano and voice as a uh, no I've never had a lesson really really there are many good musicians that fall in that category you also have associated with some of those haven't you Oh, yes, yes. And when I was in Paris, I met Billie Holiday. Mm. And that was incredible. I didn't. The thing was that I was this little gal from London uh, booking into Paris during my year at the Astor Club. My boss let me go for a month because people came in and wanted to book me at this jazz club. And the buzz went round when I was playing there at Billie Holiday. And I thought, who's Billie Holiday? I, had, I was so ignorant about the, that sort of thing then at 24 years old. And um, then she came, and at 4.30 in the morning, we had dinner with her, yeah, the other piano player. Mm. So she was something else. I mean, she was. it was 1956, I think, 56. or 54, rather. Right. And she, um, she was not very coherent, really. Mm. She did sing for us, though, at the club, and sang, and I was amazed. I mean, I, and since then, I've studied her music and love her. You've had and nothing uh, nothing but just positive things happen in your life, right? I mean, well, are, are any, yes, any setbacks? Well, yes, except for my love life, darling. Don't even talk about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, how, how did you overcome any setbacks? I, I've, I've been a creative and have auditioned and uh, been involved in music somewhat, and uh, sometimes it gets a little bit stressful. How do you overcome those stresses? Well, you know, I, twice in my life is the, the worst thing that ever happened to anybody. Um, I was singing in a hotel in Cape Cod, when um, I saw one of my neighbors come in and very worried and in, in, in work clothes to tell me that my little son had been run over. Oh, my. And that, that was in 1958, a beautiful little darling boy. And then in 1978, I was working in London at the Chelsea Hotel in Knightsbridge um, when I saw my husband coming in um, with a worried look on his face, I just finished the gig and was talking to some friends to tell me that he'd had news from California that my my firstborn son had been killed in an accident. Ouch! And that's pretty. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to even talk about now, you know, because I, I, those boys were beautiful. But I've got three beautiful daughters and a grandson and a granddaughter. And your so daughter participates with you in some of your stage presentations yes, now. Yes, does, yes. Beth Wonderful. Is, she's a great singer. She should have been in the business, really, but it was uh, she had to... Uh, 
she's brilliant. That's <laughs> oh. so all I can say is she's absolutely brilliant. And she acts like my agent now as well as everything else. She takes care of everything. Did you ever have the occasion to meet Duke Ellington or any yes, of those I uh, did. performers? That was also in Cape Cod. And um, my husband at that time was in the military. I have to confess to you, Jay, I've been married three times. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a widow, but... Um, at that time, we were in the military, and we heard Duke was coming to the, the base, and so we've got babysitters, of course, and off we went. Well, I love Duke Ellington's music, always have done, and stuff he writes as well with Billy Strayhorn, and I sing a lot of his stuff. And um, we went, and I said, it's no good. I've got to go backstage. I've got to meet this man. So we did, and believe it or not, he, he said, hello, and he said, what do you do? And I said... Well, I, I'm a singer. And he says, oh, really? He said, come and sing with my band. Just really? like that. Just like that. And I said, oh, um, um, I don't think I'd better. I'd had a couple of beers, and I was terrified of making a mistake. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I, I really think you are a singer. What are you going to do about it? And I said, well, frankly, I, I don't really know. And he said, well, I'll tell you what to do. Don't ever deal with a middleman. He said, you make a demo and go to New York and see my producer, Irving Townsend, his name was. Incredible. He said, and tell him I, I recommended you. And uh, so I did. I went to Boston and made this recording. I did, um, te- um, uh, what's that one called? I can't remember what it was now. Anyway, he loved it, and I, I sat in this huge studio and when they, when they did recordings in those days, it went straight on to vinyl. Correct. And um, so I ended up making this almost a long player, you know, an LP. And because he kept saying, oh, can we hear another one, Ruth? Can we hear another one? Incredible. <laughs> and so it was very, very uplifting. But I had just had a baby. She was six weeks old. And he said, to, to produce you, Ruth, we have to, you'd have to do every state you know, travel to every state. And I said, no, I can't leave my baby. Mm. And that was that. You have also, though, just for those who love music and love your style of singing and your your interpretation of music, you have produced three or four CDs. Yes, yes. Well, the best one is uh, the Ruth Allen Songbook, because I was hoping to make more than one. It was volume volume one. And a full orchestra. I mean, the, the cream of the crop. I've only got three copies left, mm. and um, I, I, not, I didn't make a penny out of it, but it was bu- even 20 strings on four of the numbers. Fabulous. It's beautifully produced, and the, the arrangements are marvelous, but um, unfortunately, my, the, the guy who was supposed to be my publisher at the time really wasn't well enough known to everybody. The only one who responded was my dear friend, Michael Feinstein. Yes. He sent it to every name he could think of. We, uh, Tony Bennett must have at least three of them. <laughs> and But he's never, ever, you know, sang one of my songs. But Michael actually called me at home in London and um, asked, uh, he said, this is Michael Feinstein. And I said, oh, sure it is, you know. I thought, ah. nah, it's one of my mates doing, <laughs> you know. But uh, it was Michael. And he said, Ruth, I think you're a wonderful songwriter. And it was a, oh, the dearest thing. He said, if you ever come to New York, please uh, let it, let me know. So I had his number. And when I did come to New York, I did exactly that. And the next week, his producer called me and said, Ruth, um, Michael's doing a show at Carnegie Hall, and he wants you on it. We're, we're honoring Charles Strauss. Incredible. So we'd like you to do one of your songs and one of, for Charlie Strauss. So I said, oh, wonderful. So I did. You've and had a, there I was with Michael Fines and at Carnegie uh, Hall. A fas- fascinating story. What is going to be the maybe the one story that people will find even more fascinating than what you've shared? Or is um, there anything? Well, the fact that I'm still doing it, I guess. <laughs> and I'm appearing here in, um, in Valencia at a place called Larson's Steakhouse. And Beth and I do um, the first Sunday of the month and the third every third Friday. And we're we just really enjoying it so much. And, of course, we do all the old Cole Porter and songs. 
Cole Porter, you know, Jerome Curran, Rogers and Hart, all that kind of, 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 that's the only music we ever do. Well, maybe occasionally do a Beatles or something. But, and then my own songs I throw in there, too. They like um, the theme song from my show is uh, You're Never Too Old. Yes. So, um, which is my theme song. And we've, we've played that at the opening of the, of the segment. So that, yeah. will, that will give people at least a flavoring. Now, you do have a website. <laughs> do, you, do you want to share yes, your I website? Yes, I do, yeah. And uh, how do Ruth, they get in touch there? Yes, Ruth dot, Ruth dash, rather, like a hyphen, yes. Alan. Dot com. Dot com, correct. Yeah. Your book, where can my listeners get a copy of it and keep in touch? Uh, well, because it, this Amazon, is it's in Amazon. A lot of people have already bought it on Amazon, and it's called I'll Still Be Me by Ruth Allen. And that's a line from one of the songs from my show, which is uh, Would I Still Be Me? And uh, I thought, I'll still be me. It sounds pretty good, so... That's the title it's, of it. It's a fun. And it's doing quite well too. It's a fun book. It, it just the cover itself is engaging. You're smiling in both of your photos. Well, that that white piano there is the one that uh, my boss, who was the owner of the Astor Club, uh, made me pick out for myself. Took me shopping really? to a piano store, and as soon as we got it back to the Astor Club. He had these people there who painted it white, oh my. to my horror, because it was a mahogany piano. Oh <laughs> and um, so there it was. And that's that's my uh, the, the big picture was really a big picture in the entrance to the Astor Club oh. of me at 24 years old. And then on the back of it, I'm honestly myself. <laughs> mm. Congratulations yeah. on completing this and sharing your story. 160 pages. It's not a boring read, people. You need to get a copy of this and uh, connect with Ruth Allen and her music. The title of the book again is I'll Still Be Me, Musical Memoirs of Ruth Allen. Thank you, Ruth, for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. I hope I haven't been boring. Oh, (laughs) you're not boring even a little bit. And for Author Talk, (laughs) this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, Never Quote the Weather to a Sea Lion, and Other Uncommon Tales, author and founder, Paul Binder, joins us from New York City. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Jay. Hi. Pleasure visiting with you. I also see there's a forward by Glenn Close. Uh, tell oh, us, yeah. a, tell us a little okay. more of your background and a little more for those who are not familiar with the Big Apple Circus, a little more of that history and, and how this book got to be written. Well, the Big Apple Circus is a wonderful, intimate, theatrical, wandering circus. We're based in New York City. We actually perform at Lincoln Center in New York. On one side of us is the Metropolitan Opera, the other New York City Ballet. We work in a big top, uh, big top tent uh, that has a, uh, 1,600 seats, uh, and it's a 12-week run in New York City every year, and then we tour as well. We go to Boston. We go to the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, we go to Atlanta, uh, and we go to some smaller venues, central New Jersey and uh, um, um, Queens in New York, and it's it has a great following. The Big Apple Circus. The, sti- uh, the style of the circus too is a little more intimate than the uh, the standard uh, fair, isn't it? Oh yeah, it, this is one ring, very theatrical. 
one ring. So uh, the entire audience is sitting around the uh, the one ring, and it's only 1,600 people uh, in, at any given time. Uh, we, we tend to be full uh, because people really, we have wonderful support in the communities that we, uh, we work. We also have uh, community programming in just about everywhere we work. We, we work in 15 hospitals, actually nationwide, with our clown care unit, which has clowns visiting the bedsides of acutely and chronically young children. But these are professional clowns in a professional program and it's year-round in each of those hospitals we're at. Uh, that's our largest community program. In any case, it's a wonderfully, uh, it's a wonderfully theatrical uh, one-ring circus. Paul, uh, as a founder and, and uh, beginner of this, this concept, this idea, did you have a background only in theater, or was it also in the circus arts? Well, I, I graduated from uh, Dartmouth College. I, my first job at Dartmouth College was to uh, become the floor manager for Julia Childs, the French chef. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, she, and she was a wonderful, uh, wonderful to work with. But also, the good news is we got to eat the food that she, <laughs> she cooked. Uh, so we would do a main course show in the morning, you tape it, have that for lunch, and then we'd do a dessert show in the afternoon, and we'd have our dessert and take some home while we were at it. Uh, but that was my first job at a college. I also worked uh, after that um, for Merv Griffin. And eventually, uh, you know, I was on the, working as associate producer of the original Jeopardy! Uh, and then became a booker for the Merv Griffin show. So that was my TV background. Uh, and then from there, I did an audition and became a member of the San Francisco Mind Troupe, which is where I learned how to juggle. And the juggling led me to eventually uh, start the Big Apple Circus. Now, there's a lot in between of that. Uh, I left the Mind Troupe, and with a partner, we took a comedy juggling act from London on the streets, all the way to Istanbul, uh, and made our living that way. Eventually, returning to Paris, and we were recruited into a circus there, and that's how the circus uh, part of my uh, life began. Incredible! And you began this. How long ago was the the beginning of the Big Apple Circus? How many years again the has Big it Apple, been? The Big Apple Circus started. The Big Apple Circus in 1978, uh, and uh, we've grown incredibly since then. It, 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 uh, we started in New York City, actually um, on a, the landfill that eventually became uh, Battery Park City, for those of you who know New York, yes. New York City. Yes. And it's always been in a big town, in a tent. We and, do some stage shows occasionally, but that's not our, that's not our central big episode. And there is a large stage show, circus-type uh, event that has uh, become well known. Did they not take some of your theatrical uh, interpretations and uh, embellish those? And and uh, are you re in, are you referring to Cirque du Soleil? I, I am kind of. Yeah, yeah I was. <laughs> uh, well, yes, yeah, Cirque. Uh, actually, in the early days, Cirque came and we. Guillaume uh, uh, Liberté, who was the founder of Cirque du Soleil, and I had several conferences. We helped them. Uh, understand uh, what tenting would be like, and they had become this enormous uh, organization, worldwide organization. So, uh, you know, we have roots together. Yes, I, I, I had that impression that there might be some connection there. The, the title of your book is Engaging, Never Quote the Weather to a Sea Lion, of course. And uh, Glenn Close has, uh, has been a, a contributor to your book. What is the motivation behind it? What, what was the inspiration in, in putting this to print? Well, it, what it is is a group of stories. It's a memoir. But it begins actually uh, with a few uh, notes about my childhood and stories that, that took place in my childhood that influenced um, me to start the Big Apple Circus. And Syria, it's just fresh, delightful stories, things that I've been had for years, and people urge me, oh, you should tell your story, so uh, write a book. Glenn and I met because uh, I was hired, and the Big Apple Circus was hired, to train the cast of the original Broadway production of Barnum. Mm. And uh, Glenn was uh, uh, Charity Barnum. She was uh, Barnum's wife. And uh, as she describes in her introduction, in her uh, preface to the book, a forward, uh, she says she was terrified because in the script she had to juggle 
And she had to juggle while singing in a solo spotlight Ouch. on stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> and uh, she said she was terrified, uh, but I was assigned to teach her how to juggle. And from, I must tell you, she's a hell of a student. Really? Uh, and it was such a great pleasure. So she writes all about that in the foreword to the book. She she got an earlier edition of the book and said she would be delighted to write a foreword. So she's remained a friend over the years. She comes to the Big Apple Circus now with her grandchildren, and it's always a pleasure to see her. She She's an incredibly uh, bright, uh, energetic woman, and, you know, with awards galore and uh, in uh, movies and theater. Amazing talent. Uh, share a couple of the stories that you've uh, included in your book that you think might be uh, kind of a teaser, get people interested in your book. Well, there are all kinds of uh, things. You know, I, I, one that I was thinking of that just came to mind was uh, we, our elephant trainer for many years was uh, William Woodcock Jr., uh, who was known as Buckles. And uh, Buckles, uh, uh, he was brilliant. Uh, he had uh, one great elephant named Anna Bay, who, who was world, literally world-renowned in circus because she was such a great performer and clearly enjoyed doing it. So uh, one season, we decided to create an act. We create acts all the time, new and fresh material, even though the artists uh, you know, bring, uh, bring their own material and own acts. But we create with them, take their act, we put it in a, in a form, a shape, in this case, it was an Indian wedding, mm-hmm. not, a, not an American Indian, India, Indian. Indian. And he had a pair of elephants, and on top of them, there was a padre, two beautiful performers doing acrobatics on the elephants. Ouch. And uh, we dressed him, you know, with a turban and a long, yes, uh, yes, swami, a coat and beautiful shoes, and he, he, you know, he walks alongside and handles the elephants. And he, I was all it was a beautiful act. And one day he walked up to me and he said, uh, oh, I sent the videotape to my mother last night. And uh, she, I spoke to her on the phone this morning. Uh, and he said, I said, hey, well, what'd she think? She said, she told me I look like a goddamn salt shaker. <laughs> Leave it to family members to keep you grounded. <laughs> and I said, Bill, well, um, okay. Well, you know, I would say you've always been a seasoned performer. So uh, <laughs> you never know what mom going to say when you create that. But that was only one of many. You know, dozens of the, the book starts with me when I was four years old. My mother took me to the Macy's Parade. Mm. Um, and uh, we got there. I, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. We came in by subway. By the time we got there to see the parade, the crowd was five deep. And uh, so she asked the guy in the second row, a tall man, she said, would you mind if my son, now remember I was four years old, sat, right. on, sat on your shoulders. And... Uh, he said, no, he was a terrific man. I got on his shoulders, watched the parade. It was exciting and you know, left deep impressions. And that was that, except that six months later, we went to the movies, uh, my sister, my mother, and I, to uh, see Miracle on 34th Street, the original Miracle on 34th Street, yes. which opens, opens with the uh, Yates' Parade. And uh, about three or four minutes into the film, my mother jumped to her feet, pointed to the screen, and said, It's Paul! It's my son, Paul! <laughs> and there I was, on the screen, really? sitting behind Edmund Gwen. They took a shot of Edmund Gwen, who was one of the stars of the yes. Chris Pringle. And uh, there is a little guy with ear flaps watching the parade. Incredible. Clear as a bell. I, you know, I, have a, uh, I got a screenshot of it, uh, a, a one-frame screenshot, and there I was with my... Uh, with my smile on my face, enjoying the Macy's Parade. Well, I've seen that. I saw it then, and I saw it many times afterwards in various forms. It left a deep impression. I would think. <laughs> there I was on the giant screen. And uh, I, think, uh, it, I think in some way it, it, was, uh, it was the seeds of becoming a performer and becoming uh, uh, creating a big apple service. What a phenomenal start. I mean, you also have, had, you also have included stories about Paul Newman and Robin Williams, Robert De Niro. Uh, anything yeah. in there that uh, might find uh, its way into the hearts of our, our listeners? I, I, I love that uh, Paul Newman uh, would come every year, very often with uh, the Hole in the Wall gang, 
mm. uh, which was, of course, his camp. And uh, they used it as a fundraiser for the National Service. They brought people and made money that way. And uh, But he'd come. One year, he called up and he said, Paul, I'd love to be in the show. And I said, well, <laughs> so come at 1030 <laughs> on uh, Saturday morning. That was the day of the show. And we can rehearse you into a bit. And you can be in it well. He came. We did the rehearsal. It was called Clown School, which uh, people are taught how to do the clown trick, mm-hmm. and which means you walk along, your foot catches, you stumble, and you roll over. You hit the ground and roll over. Yes. And uh, there it was. He came, and, and he's dressed as a clown. The clown school had several clowns that would do the clown trick before someone in the audience would do it. So he came into the ring dressed as a clown. He had makeup on, um, red nose. And I'll tell you what, a lot of the people in the audience recognized him immediately because you couldn't disguise the blue eyes, you know. And there he was. And they already knew that Paul Newman was a part of that organization. But anyway, he he walked through. It was time for him to do the clown trick. He fell down. He stood up. Everybody cheered. I revealed that it was Paul Newman out of the ring. He, He goes. And that's, you know, and it was a great moment. Incredible. The loved the fact that Paul was in it. Well, the next year, I called him up and I said, Hey, Paul, would you, uh, would you want to be in the show again next year? And he said, Not on your life. I said, what? <laughs> he said, Do you know last year when I did that clown trip, I broke my elbow? <gasps> my. Oh. <laughs> so we, we broke Paul Newman's elbow. Nonetheless, he kept coming to the show. Man. But actually, he did make one other appearance. A few years, after I, that. but he I, didn't have to hit the ground, so he was very happy. With it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I. He he quoted as saying uh, he fell into some elephant exhaust or something. Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think that would have been worse. I don't been, know which is worse. Don't know which worse. You have some amazing yeah. stories, and and they all are. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of uh, insightful uh, views in your in your stories that you tell. What is the the one thing you want people to take away from reading this besides the obvious? Well, yeah, I, I think I think it's just a sense of joy and the joy that uh, I've, I've gotten in my life from working with wonderful people. Yes, yeah, Paul Newman, Robin Williams, and many celebrities, but uh, the, of working with circus performers who are simply some of the most amazing people in the world. They're very kind of ordinary people. And then suddenly they, they transform and do these extraordinary things. You know, and the lesson learned is uh, with the discipline and the focus and the uh, constant patience and practice, these people become extraordinary. And you know, I think the message of uh, the circus done right, a good circus artist, is uh, each of us is capable of extraordinary uh, things in our life. Um, and from the response of our audience over the year, and they come back, very loyal audiences come back and see it again, it brings them that kind of stimulus to their life, the realization that as a human being they can do extraordinary things. So that that's embedded in the book. It's all part of uh, what uh, these stories tell us. Reflections of uh, some very joyful experiences. The title of the book, again, is Never Quote the Weather to a Sea Lion. And other uncommon tales from the founder of the Big Apple Circus, Paul Binder, with Ford by Glenn Close. Uh, Paul, where can my listeners get a copy of this beautiful, beautiful book? Uh, Amazon sells it. Amazon.com sells it. Or you can go to my website, uh, paulbindercircus.com, and order it. Uh, And I'll send you a signed copy if you do that. If you send it to me, I'll be happy to send you a signed copy with a small discount. Uh, postage paid. <laughs> so, wow. by all means, come that way. Bullbindedcircus.com. Fabulous. 216 pages, wonderfully written. Thank you, Paul, for the insight, not only to your life, but also into the, the wonderful background story of the Big Apple Circus. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. 
After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is an intriguing title, an alternative to holy war, and our author, Arthur Greer, who writes under the pen name of Pasha Mohammed Tihara, is joining me from California. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. This is a different a different approach to a very complex subject. Uh, you have also used or coined the term or used the term in here, uh, Christian uh, Muslim. Is that a, a term that uh, is one that's common or one that you are using? Uh, I don't think I said Christian Muslim anyway. Did you say pro- pro- maybe Protestant Muslim? Is that uh, How did I? Uh, Protestant, yes. Protestant Muslim, and your book is 144 pages. How would you describe it? Is it a treatise? Is it a uh, uh, an outline of a particular viewpoint? How would you describe it? Uh, it's a dialogue of a movement uh, in an answer to a position that is being taken by the Islamic Church. Uh, one, the uh, Islamic Church wants to have Sharia law, the law of the Church, to be used to regulate all of Islam. We, on the other hand, who are a part of the Protestant movement, want international law to regulate the people of Islam outside of the area of faith and morals. So faith and morals would be the church's responsibility, uh, the uh, organized religion approach, and then outside of that it would be the the law of the land, basically. Yes. That doesn't mean that we don't contest some of the concepts uh, that are being propagated by the church through Sharia law regarding, say, the say that if a person were to steal something to cut off their hand, we would not uh, allow that to happen, whether the church law provided for it or not. I see. And such as that. Yes. Uh, you have you have uh, have approached this from what you would call the Congress of the Sunni sect of Islam. Is that uh, my understanding of your book? Uh, well, <clears throat> let's say that the uh, principles of marriage, of uh, certain rituals that are common to various sexes of Islam. We follow the criteria that's set down by the Sunni sect of Islam. That, however, is our only relationship to the Sunni sect of Islam. They have no responsibility for any of the concepts of the movement that we advocate in my book. Any any relationship or uh, adherence or reflection on the uh, the Shia side of the uh, of the sect of Islam? Uh, wherever there are concepts that we feel 
that they provide the best course for Islam, we adhere to the Shiite also. Both, both of both, both uh, approaches. Yes. When you began to write this book, what was your motivation? There was and is uh, a position taken by certain leaders of the Islamic Church that they are authorized to impose Islamic theology upon the nations of the world through the use of murder, violence, and war. We are opposed to this. Our position is that during the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad, he was teleported or revealed to him in the revelation that he was amongst the prophets of the Most High God, Allah, and that he was transported to be with the other prophets in Jerusalem, which includes, of course, all of the prophets that are listed in the Quran. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you were about to say? No, I, I was. I was just reflecting on on what you just said. It uh, it deals with the historical past and uh, what what is reflected there. Uh, yes, as a basis of uh, all of our uh, present positions, uh, we rely upon the uh, fundamentals that are advocated, preached, and taught by the prophets who are listed in the Quran. And this includes Jesus Christ, whom we regard as a prophet of Allah. Now, Arthur, as you begin to write this, is this book, would you call it an official document, or is this one that is a reflection of your reflection of your faith? Uh... I can't say official in the sense that it's the representative of a, a particular sect or a particular group or a particular nation. The Islamic Protestant movement, it is official to that particular movement. And, and that is all that I can say about it being official. Yes, that's a new term for me, Islamic Protestant. It is a term that was, uh, we believe, identifies our movement with a similar movement within the uh, Christian church where uh, the theologians were in control of the government and the people. And we think that we have established that the rights of the people come from God, not from the theologians of the Islamic Church. And therefore, we have a right to discuss and to disagree and not to be killed because we do disagree with what the clergy believe. And this particular movement, the the Islamic Protestant movement, how large is that worldwide? Uh, I would say that we are small at this time. We would like to include all of the Shriners, American Shriners, in our movement. However, they have not decided to participate at this time. We have designated uh, the an order of Shriners, 
the order of the mystic shrine of Shriners. And the mystic shrine is the holy city of Mecca. And we are a fraternal organization. However, we include women uh, with as equals, let's put it that way, yes. Yes, that's unusual. Yes. We hold that men and women have in common a body, a soul, the same right, the same rather the same origin, birth, the same destiny, death, and in between those pillars, there is life to which we are all entitled by God to do our own individual lifestyle. And that women and men have this or those things in common. That you cannot make a distinction through the clergy that God has not made. Arthur, you mentioned the Shriners, a, a well, uh, at least a high-profile organization. There is a link yeah. to the, uh, I guess, the sect of in Islam. Uh, how would you describe that connection? Why is there Islamic uh, features, ex- Islamic uh, symbols included in that organization, that uh, that order? of? Uh, I can't speak for the Shriners. I know that they do uh, pay homage to the holy city of Mecca. I know that they do uh, accept uh, Islamic traditions and certain uh, other factors. I do know that the Order of Shriners of the Mystic Shrine accept all of the teachings of all of the prophets who were listed in the Quran. Interesting insight. What do you hope to accomplish by sharing this book and this study with the world? I, our mission is to participate in the application of the teachings of the Prophet Allah, whom we think had a relationship with God that ordinary men do not have, that they, in fact, were in contact with him and had a, they talked to him. And they, like, uh, we believe the Prophet Adam in the Garden of Eden talked to God. We believe that Christ on the Mount talked to God. We believe that Muhammad, through his revelation, talked to God. Jeremiah, Daniel, all of the prophets talked to God. So that if we can apply those principles in our daily lives, wherever and whenever possible, we hope and we are participating in the application throughout the universe as far as we're concerned, and in particular the earth itself. We want people of the earth to appreciate and accept those concepts into their daily lives. And would it be proper to say also live in harmony? Yes, harmony, yes. We are not trying to superimpose our belief onto or force our beliefs upon to other denominations. We're not trying to make Christians become Muslims. We're not trying to make Buddhists become Muslims. We're only advocating that these principles 
that the prophets received from God should be accepted by those denominations and that we together can create or participate in the creation of a world where God's rules are done, or his will is done, on earth as it is in heaven. Arthur, thank you for your insight. The title of the book, again, is An Alternative to Holy War. And Arthur writes under the pen name of Pasha Muhammad Tia Hara. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? It's uh, available to Barnes & Noble. It's available to Arthur House. And I would like to make one other comment in conclusion. Yes. The title itself suggests an alternative to holy war. Our alternative to holy war is the United Nations to exert its police power and to take into custody and try these people who are murdering innocent civilians. We want that as an alternative to holy war. I think most of my listening audience would agree with that. Thank you so much for your insight, sir. Thank you for calling me. My pleasure. For Author House and Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker.